Part Three, Chapter Two, of the Luggage of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anita Sloma Martinez. The Luggage of Life by Frank W. Borham. Part Three, Chapter Two, A Tonic of Big Things. Immensity is magnificent medicine. That is one reason, if we may let the cat out of the bag, why the doctor send us to the seaside. We forget the tiddly-winking in the contemplation of the tremendous. We lose life's shallow worries in the vision of unplumbed depths. Those who have read Mrs. Barclay's rosary will remember that, in the crisis of her life, the heroine, the Honorable Jane Champion, determined to consult her physician, Sir Derek Brand, and after having realized the fearful strain to which his poor patient's nerves had been subjected, he exclaimed, Here is a prescription for you. See a few big things. He urged her to go out west and see the stupendous falls of Niagara, to go out east and see the Great Pyramid. Go for the big things, he said. You will like to remember when you are bothering about pouring water in and out of teacups, Niagara is flowing still. All of which is, of course, very excellent. It is the word we need. The tendency of life is to drift among small things, small anxieties, small pleasures, small ideas, and small talk. He is a very wise physician indeed, who can prescribe for us a tonic of big things. In the course of that long struggle in his own life, which reflects itself in Christian's lengthy pilgrimage to the cross, John Bunyan enters in his autobiography two records that are worthy of frequent observation. I quote, of course, from Grace Abounding. While I was thus afflicted with the fears of my own damnation, he says, there were two things would make me wonder. One was, when I saw old people hunting after the things of this life, as if they should live here always. The other was, when I found professors much distressed and cast down when they met with outward losses. Lord, thought I, what a do is here about such little things as these? That is the point, such little things as these. We are like the pebbles on the beach. It is not easy to keep among the big ones at the top the big ones that feel the laughing caress of every wave and the lovely radiance of every sunbeam. The tendency is to get shaken down among the small shingle underneath, but we are forgetting the other record from the inner life of Bunyan. Upon a day the good providence of God called me to Bedford to work at my calling, and in one of the streets of that town I came where there were three or four poor women sitting at a door in the sun talking about the things of God. I heard, but understood not, for they were far above, out of my reach. Their talk was about a new birth, the work of God in their hearts. They talked how God had visited their souls with his love in the Lord Jesus, and with what words and promises they had been refreshed, comforted, and supported. These two keynotes, the one taken from the first quotation, and the other from the second, are worth repeating. Such little things as these, the things of God far above, out of my reach. 
the soul of the poor tinker was tired of the microscopic and hungry for the majestic he craved a tonic of big things and the talk of the four poor women sitting in the sun was like a banquet to his famished spirit the thing has its parallel everywhere to take one of the most familiar of all our religious classics it occurs in john wesley's journal we all remember how pitifully weary the great methodist apostle became of the crowd of small men who buzzed about him with a multitude of small concerns and we have all felt the glow of his delight when we found some kindred spirit with whom he could freely converse on the great themes of the christian gospel there are times when we get so tired of the plain we love to get among the mountains the soul makes its own pilgrimage among great rugged snow-clad ranges along whose tracks and passes she never loses her way she loves the peaks that pierce the sky she enjoys the tonic of big things in lord morley's magnum opus he reproduces one of mr gladstone's letters in which the great statesman tells of a visit to dr chalmers and by nothing was mr gladstone more impressed than by the utter incapacity of chalmers to indulge in small talk he simply lived among mountains everything about chalmers was massive monumental magnificent who that has read it can ever forget his historic utterance before the general assembly of the church of scotland when he explained his change of views on the subject of ministerial preparation he explained first of all the change that had come over his own spiritual life i was wrong sir he cried strangely blinded that i was what sir is the object of mathematical science magnitude and the proportion of magnitude but then sir i had forgotten two magnitudes i thought not of the littleness of time i recklessly thought not of the greatness of eternity that word magnitude was characteristic of the man and it profoundly impressed mr gladstone as being characteristic of his conversation when only tiny themes presented themselves the doctor was as silent as the sphinx he had nothing to say says mr gladstone he was exactly like the duke of wellington who said of himself that he had no small talk his whole mind was always full of some great subject and he could not deviate from it chalmers never wasted time on small topics dr donald fraser tells us in his biography if he could find a man fit to enter on great matters in a classical and memorable passage towards the end of the decline and fall of the roman empire gibbon describes the triumph of the most majestic masterpieces of roman architecture huns goths and vandals had done their worst the city had been sacked again and again the hand of the iconoclast had been pitiless everything destructible had been ruthlessly destroyed yet some things remained they remained because they were not destructible and those things were the big things the fretwork and the fancy work the delicate carvings and dainty ornamentations had fallen before the brutality of the vandals but the towering columns and colossal arches defied alike the teeth of time and the malice of the barbarian the big things stand now abideth it is ever so 
Every preacher knows that it is the great things that hold the field, and they hold the field simply because the people, tired to death of trifles, need a tonic of big things. The preacher of small subjects is doomed. The Canadian Presbyterian commented recently on the farewell services of a minister who was closing a two-year's ministry, a venerable member of his congregation, in bidding his pastor a tearful goodbye, remarked, "'Well, sir, I am sorry to see you go. I never had but one objection to you. Your preaching was always too horizontal. That is the worst of small things, however prettily presented. A multitude of grains of sand, however beautiful each separate grain may be in itself, only makes a desert after all.' and there is no blinking the fact that deserts are not popular institutions. People don't like living in deserts. They like altitudes, magnitudes, infinitudes. They revel in the ruggedness of the ranges. I almost envy some of these good people who can stand in the middle of one of their prayers and touch all four sides. It is the lady of the decoration who is speaking, and she goes on. They know what they want and are satisfied when they get it, but I want the moon and the stars and the sun thrown in. Yes, our poor humanity needs a tonic of big things. The preacher must take note. The pulpit is the place for magnificent verities. It is the home of immensities, infinities, eternities. We must preach more upon the great texts of the scriptures, says Dr. Jowett. We must preach on those tremendous passages whose vastnesses almost terrify us as we approach them. Professor Henry Drummond was once sailing along the west coast of Africa. His deck companions were four men, no one of whom could understand the other. They spake in diverse tongues, but at last one produced a Bible. The second hurried to his cabin and appeared with his, then the third and then the fourth. By a stroke of genius, the first opened his at the third chapter of John's Gospel and the great sixteenth verse. The others opened theirs and pointed with their fingers to the place, and the glow on their faces was an eloquent language in itself. Men can see the mountain peak over a multitude of intervening obstacles, and no obstacle of race or language, rank or station, can preclude men from the fellowship of life's immensities. They shall cry unto the Lord, and he shall send them a Savior, and a great one. Everything in the gospel is a tonic of big things. End of Part 3, Chapter 2